for the week of January 3rd, 2021. This is Star Wars TV Talk, where we dive deep into every Star Wars TV and Disney Plus streaming series, as well as all the latest news coming out of Lucasfilm. Today we are going to discuss the first episode of Disney Gallery, The Mandalorian Season 2. And to help me cover this is John. John, what did you think of this episode? You know that I eat this kind of stuff up. I, I had a ball covering Gallery for the first season of Mandalorian. Uh, the, the only thing that's really kind of got me down is that they skipped the one big thing that I really wanted them to cover in this episode. Which makes me hopeful that even though they haven't announced that they're going to do any more gallery coverage for Mandalorian season two, maybe after people have had enough time to experience the big twist ending Mm -hmm. uh, without gallery giving it away, maybe we will get a second installment that will cover. I don't know if we're going to talk about it on this episode or not, but obviously the, the big finale and the, the visual effects and how they created that. Um, So we didn't get that, but we got a lot of other stuff that was a lot of fun and I'm excited to break it all down. Well, the fact that this episode ends perfectly right where that reveal (laughs) kind of comes about it makes me feel like they are actually going to dive deep into that on their own episode maybe where they're just covering that reveal so should we just dance around that or should we just say spoilers up front because we're going to be spoiling a lot of other stuff in this discussion so why don't we just say everything's on the table we're not going to dance around what the conclusion of season two was if you haven't seen it obviously watch it before listening to the rest of this podcast and watch it before watching disney gallery the making of Mandalorian season two, (laughs) Um, because there's a lot that is revealed in here. Obviously it dives into a whole bunch of stuff, but the first thing that caught my attention was the creation of this ginormous crate dragon. Mm -hmm. And I really nerded out while watching this because (laughs) it was so cool how they built a full on like a virtual 3d model of this crate dragon, even though we never see the full thing in its glory, we just get this idea but I like that they created it. They gave it some legs. Um, they created their own kind of backstory with it. Like maybe as it's growing, it's growing more limbs. And they kind of just dive deep into um, just the, the throwback. Because like you said, and everyone that has watched Star Wars has noticed that in A New Hope, there is, of course, a skeleton of a crate dragon. And we get right. to see that uh, in full glory here. So I liked that a lot. And I, I really liked that they dove into like the the Jaws kind of um, Mm. approach to it, where it's like the less you see it, the more creepier it is. And so I really liked that they really went into this kind of 70s, 80s, nostalgic uh, approach for the Crate Dragon. Uh, Yeah, it's definitely era appropriate, right? Spielberg was a contemporary of Lucas. They're obviously, you know, longtime friends and kind of had a a one-upsmanship around that era where Lucas was crafting his script seemingly for years and years and years while um, Spielberg was off inventing the blockbuster, which arguably Lucas would perfect. <laughs> um, so it, it is interesting uh, that they're going to take their cues from that because yeah, if, if you're going to have a monster in an age of spectacle where you can put anything you want up on screen, just because you can put it up, that doesn't mean that it's going to give you the most like visceral, horrific, impactful feeling, you know, for your audience. And the idea is you're, you're trying to, generate some kind of reaction from your audience and that's harder and harder to do because there's no end of scale or scope or creature that you can put up on screen we, we've seen that in superhero movies where it seems like every movie now they have to destroy the world with a with a giant space beam because anything less than that would feel 
short shrift in this age of just everything dialed up to 11. So for them to step back and say, no, no, how, how would we have tackled this if maybe we didn't have the opportunity to, to reveal it? Uh, obviously, you know, we do get the full reveal of the crate dragon at a certain point, but if maybe there were technical limitations to what they could show the way that there was with jaws how do you artistically handle that to make sure that you're letting the audience's imagination do most of the heavy lifting and when you watch the episode you realize they they are quite sparing with it especially up front like there's a there's a lot of set up to what is this kind of noise afar off and what's shaking the ground and you know what what is that coming down the road and then eventually you just get the the one chomp and he's gone again and then it's like all silence and calm and there is something very effective at establishing whatever the the horror is in that respect and uh i love it i love it that's artists taking what they have to work with and saying just because we can doesn't mean that that's going to be the prettiest picture i can paint i'm gonna Mm -hmm. i'm gonna uh, use restraint and i'm gonna use all of my my filmmaking craft to present the best version of this crate dragon and uh, I think they, I really think they nailed it. And uh, Jaws is the the perfect analogy of how you go about presenting a creature like this. Well, I mean, that was, I think, the first uh, horror-esque movie that I ever saw was Jaws. And I remember mm, yeah. being, the most I was creeped out was whenever you saw things through the shark's perspective, where you didn't actually right. see the shark, but you kind of saw what the shark was seeing. And then, mm-hmm. of course, whenever you don't see the shark, that's the scariest that it is. So then the reveal, when it finally, you know, eats that old man that falls off his sailboat, it's kind of this, like, <laughs> ultimately scary reveal and i think they nailed kind of the same feeling with this crate dragon where the first time we see it you know of course the poor little banthas right are getting destroyed but <laughs> now that they have put that in my brain that they were very much inspired by jaws every time i watch this i'm gonna see it now because it's mm-hmm. it's it's embedded in my brain yeah it's good filmmaking and yeah if he just crawled out and was kind of like what we saw in lord of the rings like a dragon in its full glory here it is cinematically and widescreen um it's fun. You know, there, there's a fantasy aspect to it, but no, I, I would have rather have them deal with it in this horrific, uh, approach, uh, very effective. And that episode is very effective. I, I'm, I've watched it two or three times now and it holds up like you're waiting for the reveal and there's excitement in it and there's weight to it. And there's just, there, there's something just really competent about what they were doing there. And, and this just touches on some of the insights they had to help them navigate this in such a way that it is a really effective set piece. So, um, yeah, as the, as the first little thing that they wanted to highlight in this episode of gallery, uh, I, I think there's definitely a story there that just because we can put anything we want up on screen doesn't mean that that's going to be the best for the audience. And, uh, these are the results we get when, when people use that kind of restraint. And this kind of leads us into our next point here. But one of the things that Mandalorian does amazingly is this idea of bringing in multiple genres into this show. And you're using, you know, the galaxy far, far away, this vast galaxy that we haven't even seen, you know, 1% of to their advantage here, where it's like now we get into this kind of gangster-esque type Mm -hmm. of uh, of genre with this, of, of course, Mando walks down this dark street and you see these things lurking in the shadows and then of course all the graffiti to achieve this kind of uh new genre that's introduced in here and that i think is where the mandalorian is so successful because they're able to do that and they're just like well no we're a samurai western we can't we can't venture too far from that sure but this one they're like you know what we are going to venture far from it and create this kind of gangster genre now yeah they talk about that they talk about how 
sure there's there's the immediate obvious things that we know Lucas was drawing on originally when he was crafting a new hope but that doesn't mean that that's the only stuff in in the pulp genre that you could pull mm-hmm. from so we get a lot more of that this season where they say yeah there there is other stuff that feels true to a potential inspiration for Star Wars that we are going to pull in just because it has some pulpy swashbuckling nature to it that that feels right mm-hmm. um and we get a little bit of that here and and of course there's no reason why you shouldn't create visual flourishes and, and add some history to your sets. Like if this is a, a top flight production, why wouldn't we get some renowned artists to come in and graffiti up our walls? Because we are in the seedy underbelly of this city. And this is the part of town where there's going to be people doing graffiti. And, mm-hmm. and uh, like they pointed out, it's not like graffiti's foreign to star Wars. We've just never seen it in live action before. So why not blend the two together a little bit, which we got so much more mm-hmm. of this season with live action characters. So uh, yeah, they're, they're willing to let out that leash a little bit and say, we know what we are. We're confident enough in what we are that if we want to have some visual flourish here or, you know, push the fringes out a bit in our set design or, or how we present uh, things visually, we're going to go for it because we are confident enough that it's going to play. Mm-hmm. And I think they've caught their stride enough now that when we see this kind of stuff, yeah, it absolutely does. There was nothing about it that distracted me or made me feel like, oh, this isn't Star Wars. More than anything, I just wanted to freeze frame it and say, what little Easter eggs did mm-hmm. they drop in that I can kind of pick out from all the layers of, of paint that they've splashed on the walls? Well, speaking of Easter eggs, I mean, they have a couple of obvious ones, like, of course, the 3PO <laughs> right. and then Luke and Vader fighting. Um, so they have things like that. But to me, the best Easter egg was when the artist brings up, like, yeah, we have some graffiti down here at the bottom because that's the only place that Jawas yep. could reach. And so right. it kind of <laughs> shows how much attention to detail everyone has when they come on set. And they're all on the same page. They all know what they're doing to the point where... Favreau can bring in his 18 year old sure. son to to do some of the graffiti and it's just so cool that they're such like a close-knit little family on set here and they all know what the goal is and I think that's right. another thing that makes this show so successful yep the the interesting thing with the graffiti is if they'd only had the one artist that they brought in if he was the only one painting it it wouldn't look authentic because mm-hmm. it would all have his voice and his style and as much as he's probably a virtuoso and could impose other styles there'd still be something a little too neat about it mm-hmm. so you do need other people that maybe aren't as skilled because not everyone who comes along and decides they need to leave their mark on a wall is going to be a master artist either you're going to need you're mm-hmm. just going to need some gunge to it so it's cool that you know favreau is off on a little step ladder off in the corner just messing things up just you know, just peeing on the set a little bit to make it his and yeah, his kid too. So there's, there's something that is actually kind of clever about letting the wall have a lot of different styles and voices and people impacting it. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's really cool that it, it looks layered. And so it was just cool to see that. And then them to dive into now we are definitely, this is the underbelly. Let's go into this fight club where these two creatures are literally fighting to the death to, you know, have this classic Godfather-esque, you know, sitting at the dinner table. I have this offer you can't refuse type of thing. Yeah, I what I liked about highlighting that, like obviously the way they're using the volume and just the care that they're taking in creating this arena and the Gamorrean guards, all that's awesome. I just like when they peek in on Favreau's direction of John Leguizamo. Because mm-hmm. first time through, John Leguizamo is, is saying things in a very sort of straightforward, matter-of-fact way, and it's a little too playful. Mm-hmm. And Favreau says, look, no, you, you know, you don't have to do the accent, but remember you're the Godfather. Like mm-hmm. you, when, when you speak, you're, you're, you're kind of letting everyone know that they s- sort of need to cater to 
to the way you want things done. Like there's, there's some gravitas there and he pulls it out and it's, it's a night and day difference just yep. because of that fun little bit of direction that Favreau gave him. Um, I like that. I mean, that's not hard direction to come up with, obviously like just make sure that you remember you're the Godfather. It's, it seems obvious, but at the same time, if he didn't peek in and he wasn't concerned with even these fleeting side characters that just kind of come and go and they're just basically there for exposition and you don't really need them to be special. If he wasn't concerned with making every element of the show special, he wouldn't have bothered to give that direction because any delivery that John Leguizamo came up with would have been fine. It would have got the job done, but no, he's there saying, no, no, these characters have history. They have perspective really like own it. And uh, yeah, then John Leguizamo finds it and it makes that scene all the more compelling because you do get the sense that this guy, he's willing to, take extreme measures, you know, like yeah. he, he could end you if you wanted to, and you just wouldn't get that if it was more playful. Um, so yeah, just, a, another little underscore of the quality and the care that everyone's bringing to their, their respective roles on the show. And I know we're jumping ahead a little bit, but this lead, this, it connects to Fabro's uh, directing here. And of course he's not directing this episode and he's not directing the episode that, uh, that is Bryce Dallas Howard's episode, but right. he is so, attached to this project and he knows exactly what he is looking for to the point where even when uh, Mando teams up with Bo-Katan's team for the first time, he Favreau stops and is like, hey, I don't think Mando should shoot when they do because right. that makes them seem like that they're on the same team. This is a new crew to him, so I think he should kind of like go in and have his own type of movement and, you know, he can follow their lead, but he shouldn't, you know, shoot when they shoot and have the same type of movement. And it was just, it's yeah. so fitting because I don't know if I would have caught that if it was the original <laughs> way where they're just kind of, uh, you know, very much um, in tune with one another, but it was definitely right. something that other people would have been like, yeah, he looks like he's, he's done this before with him when he should right. be a little caught off guard. Cause this is the first team of Mandalorians that he is, teamed up with outside of his creed yeah no it, it's fun that favreau offered that direction because subconsciously or just subtly it speaks so much more when you do watch the scene and you realize oh yeah these mandalorian mandos they know what they're doing they're a team they're in sync they can feel each other's movements because they've they've practiced together they've been in battle together they are a cohesive unit and mando's the odd man out He's basically, you know, just there to hopefully be a human shield at the right moment, right? Like they, they brought him in because they needed more muscle, but mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that he's at the same level as them in, as far as being able to do these kind of infiltrations and work as a team. And yeah, you need someone to pick that up and, and say, we can demonstrate that visually without spelling it out. Mm -hmm. Uh, you don't need a scene where Bo Katan calls back and says, Mando, keep up. You know, like right. you don't need anything that overt if we can just say it with just the language of how the scene unfolds. So yeah, just again, we're, we're going to say the same thing over and over again, mm -hmm. just about the, the care that everyone brings and the, the very competent eyes that are overseeing this production. And obviously, you know, Favreau's at the very top of the heap when it comes to uh, being able to get the most out of your frame. So yeah, another fun thing that they picked up on. And this show is obviously no stranger to bringing back some original designs from, of course, right. the original Star Wars. And the first one we get is Ice Spiders, where this came from, the concept art from Empire, which we talked about on our coverage of the episode. But mm -hmm. it's just nice that, you know, whenever you have this team working together and you have all these different brains and you're like, you know, whenever I saw this concept art from Dagobah, it looked a little out of place. Like, I felt like this should be on ice. And so they had, of course, this opportunity to bring in these ice spiders. And, of course, there's that horror genre again, alien-esque type of um, 
uh, type of callback here, but just listening to them talk about their process of creating this eye spider is something that I think all nerds will find satisfaction. In. <laughs> yeah. Well, obviously anytime you can bring in a Ralph Macquarie design, it's going to feel a lot truer to the original trilogy. Cause that's, you know, that's kind of the heart and soul of the visuals of the first three. So that's cool. I liked that. Yeah. Doug Chang picked up on it and said, you know what? It's a great design. I kind of get why it was never used. It just, it doesn't seem like it belongs on Dagobah, but Hey, we're, we're talking ice for episode two. I, I think, you know, obviously we can, we can draw on it. So great that the archives have this wealth of, mm-hmm. of visual stuff for them to pull from. Doug Chang doesn't need any help coming up with creature designs. You know, like right. he's, he, he's done a trilogy. Like he knows how to, you know, churn out a really great design. But when you can go back and find a little bit of just something inspired in, in what came before, fantastic. Uh, you spoke about how they were able to use them and figure out the different age, like basically the whole life cycle of the spiders put on display and uh, how much richer is the scene that we don't just get a showdown with a big baddie spider, but you just get the menace of every version of that spider that could be living in this hive. Um, that's all fun. You know, they, they definitely put that creature to good use. And as much as some people feel like this is the point where everyone was wondering, are we going to get more adventures of the week? Are we going to get a more serialized show this season? So a lot of people saw this episode and, I think maybe they they wrote it off a little prematurely as oh no this is just more side mission type stuff. Uh I I think you got to give credit to just how glorious these side missions are like mm-hmm. yeah there was nothing phoned in about what they developed in this cave and how they were able to use the volume to create what I think is maybe the most seamless use of the volume where mm-hmm. you I I don't even know how to put it into words but it should cost 30 million dollars to do that episode to build those sets, the amount of uh, frenetic camera movement that went through these scenes, they, they show one where they've got a, a digital double of the frog lady mm-hmm. uh, jumping in front of Mando as they're going down a corridor. All of that stuff should have had to have been built practically because unless you're just going to rotoscope everything and do it all blue screen and then have millions of dollars spent in post, this should all have to be practical. And the fact that they were able to do so much with the volume and it just marries so beautifully and you're not locked down. So you can have really engaging action shots. It's stunning to me what they're able to do with the volume. Uh, and so I, I wouldn't write a single episode of this season off as like filler or a side mission or whatever. Obviously you get that adventure of the week kind of a storyline, but Jeez, if if every adventure didn't have such strong visuals and, and just such strong values and direction behind it. So that's my big takeaway on the ice planet is for a side mission, I'll I'll eat that stuff up. I'll take that any day of the week. Yeah, I mean, this is something that, like you said, this is full scale ahead. I mean, they're just doing everything they can. Yeah. All the thought into even the frog lady's movements where it's like, okay, mm-hmm. when she's running on two feet, uh, you know, this is, of course, we can bring in the uh, the motion actor. But whenever we start having her jump around, like we want to show that she has done this before, obviously, mm-hmm. but maybe not so much on ice. So they have her kind of, you know, sliding around and bumping into the wall. And it's just really interesting that they, of course, did this. And I'm assuming they did this portion in previs and and of course right. helped it out because there are points where she kind of cuts in front of mando and slides in front mm-hmm. of him and of course you have uh, an actor in this suit that is running around and another thing that they did so well and i never caught it until they mentioned it in this episode was that we went this entire episode without seeing a human face until right. 
the New Republic people showed up. And so that is very difficult to capture emotions and capture just uh, the fear that this episode brought. And man, did they nail it. This was amazing. Yeah, we take for granted how much they're able to say with (laughs) rubber frog suits and baby animatronic puppets and a bucket head. Like we watched the season, the Mandalorian and because they worked so hard to figure out how to communicate emotion without just the human face present in frame. Now coming into season two, it's one of those things where they've caught their stride. Now they've, they've built the vocabulary. They they've made the playbook. So now they can go back to it and they, they can start drawing from everything they learned works during season one. Um, mm-hmm. Quill was a big success. Great. Bring back the lady that did Quill because she's just got a way of carrying her body that yep. can seem so sympathetic. And you see that with frog lady. It's like frog lady was even a better role for her because Quill he's articulate and he's speaking English. So there's some of the dramatic heavy lifting being done with the face, but with frog lady, there's almost nothing except just the, the froggy noise that they, mm-hmm. they edit in to let you know where she's at. So you need the actress to be just carrying her physically in such a way that it, it speaks volumes of where she's at emotionally. And uh, yeah, it's amazing how much you see in the eyes of, of plastic and rubber here that, they shouldn't be able to pull off that, that much storytelling and that much emotion, but they do like when frog lady is anxious and scared in the little puddle there that she's hanging out in, you see it, right? Mm -hmm. You, you, this rubber prosthetic somehow is startled and you Mm -hmm. get it. And, uh, this, the same, like, you know, when she's just kind of lamenting her situation back on the ship, trying to figure out how can I communicate the, the dire situation. And she has to kind of just like quietly look around the ship and look up at the droid and, and try and solve a problem for herself. Somehow you see the gears turning within frog lady. Um, so yeah, there's definitely something to be said about how much they've been able to up their, character game when it comes to characters that have very limited ability to emote because yeah you never feel hindered or handicapped in any way following these characters again you gotta just applaud the production and the craftsmanship and just how much everyone's bringing to their roles speaking of people bringing their uh experiences and their skill set into into the mandalorian we get a the first director we talked to is bryce dallas howard right and immediately Everyone is just applauding her. Of course, if you watched her episodes, you have been applauding her because she has been mm-hmm. phenomenal in this role. But it kind of makes me seem like we're going to get a lot more of Bryce Dallas Howard in the Star Wars universe, whether that's just more episodes in season three or maybe she's going to take on one of these projects that's coming up. Sure. Who knows? But it's nice to see a fellow Star Wars fan direct a Star Wars project because you can tell she is loving every second of it. And of course, she gets the privilege to bring in Bo-Katan. And she was so excited where she's reading her script and she's like, oh, it's Katie Sackhoff. Katie Sackhoff's going to gonna be here. And this was before they even announced that and even told her. And so mm-hmm. just seeing her and her giddiness and directing this episode of The Mandalorian makes me super happy and super excited for the future of Star Wars. Yeah, they obviously liked what she did with season one. She got to establish Cara Dune in her episode. Originally, when they gave her the whatever it is, uh, let's help the village from you know mm-hmm. the Marauding Band episode, I kind of thought that because there was a romantic element to it and because it was a quieter episode at moments, 
I, I assume that they were trying to give her something that maybe had more emotional heft because maybe that's what they thought was going to be her wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. But it turns out that she's just really good at establishing really potent and likable characters. Mm-hmm. And I, I think she did a good job with what they gave her to do with Cara Dune that they probably said, well, I think Bo-Katan would be in good hands. Mm-hmm. I think that might be what it came down to. Yeah, I don't know what it is that they thought was going to make her a good fit for the episode, but the episode plays incredibly well. So, mm-hmm. you know, obviously they know what they're doing. A lot of times these kind of prestige shows in the first couple seasons, they bring in a lot of different directors and a lot of different writers. And it seems like they're just trying to figure out who is a good fit. And then by about the third season, they've got a core group that stays like right till the end of the series. Mm-hmm. That, that seems to be how it goes. Sometimes they bring in, you know, one or new, two new people per season, but a lot of times it, it's pretty much set by the time you go into the third season, you know who it is that you've crossed paths with that really gets it and just knocked their episode out, came in on budget and just got the best out of their characters and understands the world and just has a, uh, a zeal for the material. You kind of know who those people are going to be. And those are the ones that you see come back and then they become your go-to people that do like maybe two or three episodes a season. It seems like that's the track she's on. Uh, yep. Rick Femiu. I have trouble with his last name, but we know who we're talking about. Um, Peyton Reed, you know, he got two episodes. So obviously they liked what he was doing and gave him the finale. So I think we're starting to see people and well, Robert Rodriguez is Mm going to be doing a whole lot of stuff with the Boba Fett series. So I think they're finding their core. They're finding the people that they know they can call on and have their, their stable of directors um, rather than have to kind of try out people and, and ramp them up from Mm -hmm. zero on the production. Like here's how we previs the whole thing. Here's everything you need to know. They've got people that have a shorthand now. And these are the people that I think are going to be with the show till the end. Yeah. Well, and I love that they're not necessarily flashy names. I mean, the flashiest name mm-hmm. that you see here is Peyton Reed and then Rick Famuiwa. He's he's kind of a, a newer he's not a newer director per se, but he's kind of newer in the popularity sphere where, he, you know, of course, he directs um, these Oscar nominated films and then goes back right. and does just all these different things. But whenever you hear Bryce Dallas Howard, and I can remember when they announced this back into whatever it was, 2018, that she was going to direct an episode of Mandalorian. I remember everyone being like, yeah, she just got that because her dad, right. like she just, she just knows George Lucas. I even said, I thought maybe, you know, her dad was opening a door mm-hmm. for her, but uh, she's shut the mouth of the haters. Yeah. Like there's, there's nothing that she's put up on screen that isn't as competent as any of the other directors they've brought in. Uh, so yeah, I, I feel bad for even suggesting that, that, you know, right off the, the heels of um, her dad coming in to realign the solo mm-hmm. project that maybe he said, you know what, you know, I'll pinch hit this for you guys. My daughter, I think, I think she could do something for you mm-hmm. and maybe tried to like, you know, open a door, but no, she, she didn't need it. I, I think mm-hmm. she's there on her own merits, but it doesn't hurt that she's been steeped in this world, right? Right. Like her, her dad has worked with Lucas. So just through osmosis, she's picked up so much of just seeing a, a good director and her dad do his thing, but also this particular corner of filmmaking you know the this this, the weird indie san francisco thing that Mm -hmm. george lucas kind of established or francis ford coppola established that um her dad's kind of married into as well so it's it's neat that she's the right pedigree so you may have assumed that it it was a favor but no nope she's doing great work and um yeah i'm i'll i'll just apologize outright for even (laughs) assuming that uh because it wasn't warranted she's doing fine well, and then even if that were true, even if Ron Howard pulled some of his strings and, and cracked the door open for her, she 
bursted the door open. She took off yeah. the hinges and she threw the door aside and said, you know what? I'm here to stay because what she's doing is absolutely phenomenal. Right. Um, if she didn't deliver, she wouldn't have come back. Right. Correct. That's what it comes down to. What she delivered is fantastic. At this point, she's here mm-hmm. on her own merits. Well, and then Anne Filoni wouldn't have been okay with her directing a Bo-Katan centric episode. Like that's another thing where, uh, you know, he kind of takes it like, okay, Ahsoka, I'm going to, I'm going to take, take lead on that one. But (laughs) Bo-Katan is, is still a huge character that Filoni contributed to creating. And the fact that he just says like, there's no way he's just giving this to someone off the street to direct as a favor. This is something that, that he of course holds close to his chest. Um, to the point where we get a really cool Katie Sackoff, Dave Filoni story, where when <laughs> yes. Filoni approached Katie Sackoff about playing Bo-Katan, he's like, hey, you know, if this works out, then maybe someday we can do a live action of you with uh, playing Bo-Katan. <laughs> and she kind of writes off like, OK, a Cartoon Network show going to turn into a live action. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Call me when that happens. And sure <laughs> enough, here we are, you know, 10 years later. And it's it's pretty great just hearing that story. Um, yeah. really makes you feel all the feels in Star Wars. Well, we did speculate on that and we don't know how much of it was really, you know, forward thinking and how much of it was just this came together beautifully and we couldn't have seen it coming. It is interesting that he said that to her that, you know what, who knows someday, maybe we could transition this into live action. So maybe when he cast her in the back of his mind, he's thinking, you know what I, for a tentpole character like this, I do want to bring in someone that we could work with. If, if, just for you know the long shot that it ever would be if we ever had to do this in live action we could stay true to the character because we already cast them appropriately and you know who's better for the genre than starbucks so mm-hmm. uh i i get it i i get why maybe in in his thinking at the time there was a bit of that but i don't think anyone could have anticipated that it would have actually happened it was just like whatever let's cover our bases mm-hmm. but how nice that it did happen and they even had the the foresight or at least again just the happy accent of making the animated character look like Katie Sackoff. Yep. It's not like an Ahsoka situation where they they couldn't bring in Ashley Eckstein because Ahsoka the character has a very distinct physical appearance. Yep. Uh and and so you know Rosaria Dawson was just a better fit that way. In the case of Bo-Katan, it's like they said, well, "Here's a picture of Katie Sackoff. That's Bo-Katan. Go animate it." Yep. And well, that those creative decisions ten years ago have paid such dividends now, and I uh, couldn't be happier because she's doing a good job in the role as well. You get uh, there, there's a bit of edge to the character, and I I think putting Starbuck in that role was just mm-hmm. you know that's what you want. So yeah, <laughs> uh, again, just more serendipity. And this kind of set the stage for me to where I realized that they put in so much thought and who directs what to the point where they now have another Cara centric episode where we see the uh, kind of this outcast hiding away Cara from season one into this martial Cara And we get to see the more badassery of Cara in this episode. So why not bring in Carl Weathers, who has the history of working with kind of these heavier action films to direct Mm -hmm. this episode? And they dive deep into that. And, of course, the relationship between uh, Gina and Carl is, of course, uh, outstanding to the point where they both know what to do and they know how to speak the same language so they can get Mm -hmm. it done. Um, It just shows the thoughtfulness that goes into that. And um, it's really nice to see someone with the name Carl Weathers direct something like this (laughs) because it really is the ultimate payoff from just every movie from the 80s. Yeah. Yeah. There's something fun about that. And, and I mean, he, he spells it out. He says like, 
I've done a lot of action movies. I kind of mm-hmm. understand the shorthand here. And before that, I was an athlete. So when it comes to physicality, I think there's something I can bring to mm-hmm. the direction of the episode. And he did. And and I think one of the stunt actors just highlighted how good the action in that episode is. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, he he found how to pace some of the action set pieces. So there's a little bit of room for levity, but it doesn't feel stilted like it doesn't feel like it slows down the scene or mm-hmm. it's it's not awkward in any way and you see him laying out that where you know and off screen you know Cara Dune's gonna kind of chide you guys a bit to get your ass in the vehicle and and uh you know you just you can you can tell that he's he sees in his head how this is gonna play on screen because he's been the actor in mm-hmm. this situation so many times wondering well how's this gonna end up playing on the screen that now you know he 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 can see all the moving pieces um yeah Nice that they they let him step in for an episode that could really work with his particular voice and the the history of action flicks that that he has. There was one scene in that episode that I don't think we I mentioned it when we covered it, but it always stuck out to me as very much like a diehard moment. Yep. When they're in the transport and they're about to go over the edge and everyone's kind of like bracing and they all kind of just like ah but they you know they got to do it they, they're out of options and a Cara Dune is in there and she's kind of just reveling in it like I just I live for this kind of stuff mm-hmm. there were there was something that just said die hard to me in, yep. in that and so I don't know if that was an intentional homage but just something about the the levity of of having that little moment of the characters going over the edge not knowing how this is going to end but this is just the way it's got to go down because there's no going back at this point. There's something fun about that. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's what Carl Weathers brought to it. And so uh, you got to, you got to respect how much fun that action was and uh, glad that he was up to the job. Yeah. And it, it like you said, that diehard esque, it, it feels very much like the eighties. <laughs> hey man, you're yeah. bleeding. I don't have time to bleed type of yeah. <laughs> um, type of thing <laughs> right. where it's like, I'm just going to ignore what's, what's currently happening. And I'm going to focus on this end goal. But one of my favorite things in life to watch is an actor directing something that they're acting in because it's quite fascinating to see Carl Weathers like he's in his spot. He's on his spot. He's exactly where he needs to be when they call action, but he's directing at the same time. You see, you know, telling cinematographers, you know, when this happens, I want you to cut quickly over here. And that's when she's going to say her line. And so it's just so fascinating to see something like that. And it's so entertaining to watch. It's, you know, it's like watching a sporting event. To me, it's Mm -hmm. super exciting. I love that, of course. And I, and I hope that we get to see more of that um, in Mandalorian season three. Well, his character's still alive. There's no reason. (laughs) Uh, we might not get another uh, Grief Karga slash Carl Weathers outing next season. Uh, I'd be up for it. Yep. Well, something else that we are up for and that is coming down the road, of course, is Ahsoka. And we knew that this reveal of Ahsoka was coming. And we, we I think we all knew in the back of our minds how emotional this was going to be for Filoni, who created this character. I mean, this was the first drawing that he presented to George Lucas as, you know, hey, the, here's my baby. What do you think of it? Can we add this right. into the show? And so the fact that he gets to see Ahsoka grow up, he he walks her through her growth process and then, of course, getting uh, Rosario to come in and play the live-action version is just super emotional for everyone involved. And it it's so nice that you have an actor like Rosario Dawson who understands the character and has been advocating for herself um, <laughs> for a few years now. Like when people were like, Hey, right. fan casting, let's bring Rosario Dawson for Ahsoka. And she's just like, yeah, well, Lucasfilm, you have my number, please let's do this. <laughs> right. um, but she just dove into everything to the point where she 
is so she works so well with the stunt coordinators because in her mind she also has an idea of how Ahsoka should move um, in these type of settings, and it's it's so fascinating to see something like that, and then to see Filoni just kind of embrace his daughter more or less that whenever he sees her in the full blown makeup, like hey, this is what we've been doing. Yeah, she definitely looked like she was having fun. And uh, they didn't even have to do any concept art or screen tester because the internet did that for them, right? Like the artwork yep. of taking like Rosario Dawson's face and turning her into Ahsoka, that, that's been around, you know, probably for the better part of a decade now. So everyone kind of knew that she had the look, that there was something Ahsoka in the cartoon, one of the defining things on her face, like she has kind of like big eyes with big eyelashes. So you know that there's like, there's a presence in the eyes that you need to capture, but she's also got like full lips and kind of a sarcastic smirk a lot of the mm-hmm. time. And there's just something about how they animated her and, and just about the characteristics of her face that you really need just the right live action visage to, to capture. And uh, I'm just happy that Rosario Dawson exists because I can't think of anyone else that it doesn't matter how much prosthetic or paint you slap on him. She just had the foundation of Ahsoka already there yeah. for them to work with and how much better that she's no like wilting Lily. Like she, she wanted to get in the fray and really inhabit the mm-hmm. character and just bring some ferocity to it. That's great because the look is only part of it. If, if she's not a, a top notch actor and someone who is going to be game for all of the, the physical aspects that come from being a, like a Jedi character uh, in an action oriented role, uh, you're still, you've only got half of the, the secret sauce. So they have the look, mm-hmm. they have a gung ho actor that actually has great chops and can find Ahsoka's voice. So they had, they just had all the pieces and you just, you don't always get casting that great. And um, nice that they, they spent a couple minutes to really show, how jazzed everyone was at this casting and, and how you know beautifully it works within the template of the Mandalorian. Yeah. And it's so great to, uh, to hear them talk about, because this was something I was processing as I'm watching it, because I read the Ahsoka novel, of course, watching rebels and clone mm-hmm. wars and seeing this, seeing the transformation of Ahsoka. And there's, you know, of course we get a completely different Ahsoka in Rebels and now in Mandalorian than we do in the Clone Wars. She's grown up a lot. And so for Rosario Dawson to take all of that and be like, okay, this is even another step ahead of this. Like I am in this kind of uncharted territory and she finds her goal and she, she does a good job at just everything to make it feel like Ahsoka. But then also for us to be like, we don't need to feel bad about, um, it being a different actor anymore because Rosario Dawson, I think, has claimed her, uh, right. ha- has claimed the right to play live action Ahsoka forever. And of course, Lucasfilm sees that obviously because we're getting a show that is centric on this character. And just to see it all come together makes you super happy for Filoni as well because I mean, this is a character that he introduced to Star Wars, not so much liked at first, and then turned into this beloved character and for a lot of people it's probably a top one or two beloved character in the star wars universe and so to see that uh formulate here and to have a kind of a a final product of that all is really um great to see and i think is good for star wars in general because this is something that it's not from the original trilogy it's not from the 70s it's Mm -hmm. not from even purely george lucas this is something that is relatively new and has worked out outstandingly. 
yeah, no, anything that people can unite around and say this, this has a right to be part of our Star Wars, like something that everyone embraces. Fantastic. That's a win. And that's a win that I think Star Wars and Lucasfilm kind of need. You know, we, we want unity in a lot of ways that maybe we haven't seen so much of over the last few years. So anything that people can rally around and say, yeah, you know what? That's stellar casting. And we, we embraced it from the first frame. You know, it was so obvious that this was the right call for the casting that have we heard any dissenting opinions is there any like mm-hmm. internet think pieces from the the nerd community saying ahsoka was miscast i i haven't seen any personally and it, it's rare that you get a casting that everyone can just get on board from like the second they hear it. um mm-hmm. donald glover as lando everyone like they said yep that makes total yep. sense i see it that's perfect go with it uh ewan mcgregor as obi-wan everyone got on board with that immediately they're like yeah who else could possibly do this uh better than than you and and occasionally you get those really inspired castings this is one of them and um you're absolutely right it's been a win across the board i haven't heard anyone complaining about this so Mm. i'll take it and another huge win that this episode brings to us is them introducing george lucas to to the animatronic (laughs) grogu where he gets to hold grogu on set um and it's you know everyone else is a little more fascinated with it than then of course, then Lucas is himself because <laughs> Lucas, you know, he's he created the foundation for this character. I mean, he knew uh, all about this, but everyone else was so excited to see this kind of old man Lucas hold this baby, uh, and it's just a great moment for me. And I, it's one of those where I like how the the puppet masters and the people controlling it were having it, uh, Grogu's ears moving around to make it seem like that it's alive when they hand it over to to George. But just a fun moment. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Fun for, like you said, pretty much everyone except George. And that's not that it wasn't fun for George, but he's never been like super emotive. Like, mm-hmm. has anyone ever seen like excited George Lucas? I have. And he's always very placid and uh, thoughtful, right? Like he chooses his word. Well, most of the time he chooses words pretty specifically. Um, so it is funny that like everyone's bringing this out. They they think that he's just going to go gaga over it. And, and he, he kind of like does a little bit of shtick, like, Oh, Hey little baby yeah. or whatever, but <laughs> more than anything, he's indulging them. And so it, it's just kind of cool that um, he's, he's there and everyone expects the world from him, but he's just, he's just a guy that he, he just enjoys looking around and just kind of kicking the tires a little bit and just kind of just quietly observing on his terms. And he, he doesn't, he's never really wanted to be the, in the the spotlight. Um, so it is the, the awkwardness of it is so charming and it's so like vintage George Lucas. So I was happy to see, I'm just happy to see him on the set chatting and collaborating and letting people pick mm-hmm. his brain and just being the, um, the, the touchstone, the, the kind of the wise old sage yep. of star Wars. Like when he sold it, Disney sold him on the idea that that's what they wanted him to be, that mm-hmm. they wanted him to have a voice in helping to bring the, the, the depth of his insight to the new properties that they were going to create. And of course, obviously, you know, there was a little bit of stumbling and hard feelings there out of the gate, but you know, it's been five years. There's been, a few things that have been more his cup of tea than maybe the, the new trilogy was. Mm-hmm. And it's nice that he's been able to be brought in and be able to kind of sign off on them and give his, just lend his perspective to it and let everyone know they're on the right track. And it's just cool to see him sitting around in a director's chair with 
Filoni and Favreau just kind of taking in the set and just chewing the fat. And, you know, it's what I would have wanted to see. I, I was, I would have hoped that that would have been the experience for everything that's happened since he sold Lucasfilm. Mm-hmm. But nice to know that it's at least happening now. So a, a touching right. scene in a few ways, even if it's hard to get George Lucas to emote, uh, you know, attachment is forbidden. You're not going to get George Lucas to really <laughs> get, get too overwhelmed by, by these kind of things. Uh, fun nonetheless. Yeah. He's still very much this kid from Modesto who's playing with, uh, playing with all these race cars and all that. So it, it's fun to see. And he, it's a similar reaction that, uh, you would think Favreau had learned his lesson from season one where he's trying to like, get him all goo goo over the Boba Fett's <laughs> rifle and it didn't right. work then like, either. Oh, I didn't, that, 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 that wasn't anything I was involved in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's just, it's just fun to see that. Yeah. It's also kind of fun. There's a few times throughout this episode where. Filoni digs super duper deep on his references and, and he thinks everyone around him is going to like get these really, really subtle, obscure things that he's weaving into what he's saying. And he's not even like winking at it too much. He's just expecting that people are going to be able to pick it up and nobody's quite operating quite at his level. Favreau is close. Like there's a lot of things that Favreau does that I think he's trying to like get a reaction of Filoni. Like he's trying to throw him a curve and say, I think this is a good idea when he knows it's a bad idea because right. he wants Filoni to like step up and say, Ooh, no, I, I, I don't think that's the right use of like McClunky or something mm-hmm. like that. So you see this back and forth that they have and it, it's, it's an interesting dynamic. And I'm not sure if even with a season or two seasons now, uh, behind them of collaborating together, if they quite get each other, cause they, they still seem like they're on slightly different wavelengths, mm-hmm. but you kind of need that. Yeah. You do need to have many perspectives. So you, you get Favreau that is just a filmmaker through and through, and that's mm-hmm. what he's bringing to it. And then you've got Filoni. That's just a fan through and yeah. through and they're meeting somewhere in the middle, but occasionally it's just this awkward little overlap that doesn't quite make any sense, um, but still fun. And I think that the people making the directory picked up on just how inscrutable some of their interactions are. And so I, I like that they're willing to throw in those little weird moments for us to try and sort out how they're coming at each other. And I, it, it also shows just how fun they're having with each other because I think, yeah, yeah. like you were saying before, um, I think Favreau actually wrote that into the script to see if Filoni would call him yeah. out and be like, no, we shouldn't right. say that. Um, and so he, to the point where he like put it in the script, like when Mando's walking away, he's going to shoot out the light and he's going to scream right. that word. <laughs> and, and then Filoni, of course, doesn't miss a beat and is like, no, he should not be saying that. That's, that's actually not a good use of the word. Yeah. So it's nice that Filoni steps up and speaks his mind. And he speaks his mind on our next point here, where, of course, we get none other than Robert Rodriguez being brought in to usher in Boba right. Fett in all of his glory. The the mm-hmm. episode that Star Wars fans have been waiting for since the Empire Strikes Back. Like, this is something that everyone, I think, that has grown up loving Star Wars has always wanted a Boba Fett episode. And it's nice to see that they brought in the perfect director to direct this episode robert rodriguez is like yep grew up watching boba fett had the toy had all this stuff before (laughs) they even you know before we even saw boba fett on the screen this was just something when you're in the theater and you saw the preview of empire and you see this guy in this helmet you're like oh who is that this is that's gonna be sweet and then the fact that he uses his kids to film this reveal to portray to filoni and fabro and it's it's a pretty awesome thing that that this is actually what because sometimes the directors are following Filoni and Favreau's lead, but this is one of the few moments where 
it's kind of the opposite where Robert Rodriguez is like, hey, I have this idea of how Boba Fett mm-hmm. should kind of come into frame and what he should do at that point. Uh, really cool stuff here, and it makes you even more excited for more Robert Rodriguez and Boba Fett. Yeah, he said something along the lines of, I wanted to approach this episode like this was the only chance we were ever going to get to see like mm-hmm. cool Boba. Yeah. Like, I'm just leaving it all on the stage. I'm going to give everything I can give to making Boba as just badass as he could ever be presented. Uh, obviously, he probably knew that there was some talk going on about dragging this out into its own series or, you know, realistically, he's probably already signed and knows that he's doing a Boba Fett series at this point. But nonetheless, he didn't want to he wanted to come in hot. He didn't want to just like hold anything back for his series. He's just like, if I've got Boba Fett and I've got 15 minutes of screen time, I'm going to give the audience what I would have wanted as a nine-year-old. And I think that's, you know, I think that's awesome. That's, that's a passion that you want. And like you said, with someone like Robert Rodriguez, what's Filoni or Favreau going to say to him to improve what he can do, right? Like we're on location. We're doing, something in the vein of uh, uh, a brutal Mexican action type of fare, which is Rodriguez's bread and butter. What is anyone going to say to him to improve upon what he could do? If you just cut him loose with the resources of the Mandalorian and a Boba Fett suit and say, go just do what you do. And uh, I love that. That's the approach they took. They brought in the director that was right for it. And then they just let him run with it. Here's three pages of plot that we need to get through. Now you yeah. turn that into what, you know, you want it to be. Uh, and he, he said he milked, you know, nine minutes of action with Boba Fett out of three pages of script. And that's a beautiful thing. That's mm-hmm. a director at the top of his game, just giving us a, a visual feast in this episode. And, and, you know, we both marveled at it when we saw it, we, we loved the episode and you could see how much of, of his like badassery was there, <laughs> you know, uh, with Boba Fett. So yeah, this again is just inspired direction and just a great production decision to bring him in. And if this wasn't enough to whet your appetite for what a Boba Fett spinoff could be, you know, what are you waiting for? Like, what what do you want if it's not going to be Robert Rodriguez take on Boba Fett? Yeah. And the take is so interesting because he brings in, he's like, okay, we got Mandalorian, the gunslinger. Well, if he's the gunslinger, then Boba Fett's the barbarian. And then exactly. he works, yeah. of course, with Timu Morrison and is like, hey, okay. And, and Timu shows Favreau the traditional Maui fighting dance and is like, well, what if we added that? And so then they, then the actor director start working with the stunt coordinators and saying, hey, here's my traditional fighting style. Is there a way that we can bring this into Boba Fett? And they, they hit it out of the park. And it's so cool that. You get Timu Morrison, who, of course, from the moment he was cast as Jango Fett, and we saw this, we've been waiting for him to reprise his role in the future as Boba Fett. And then we get to see it where he's bringing in his own culture to the character. It's It has right. to be so honoring for him and has to be honoring for Lucasfilm to, uh, to be a part of that because that, I think, is emotionally moving and is such great representation in Star Wars for a you know, a real life tradition that's here on planet earth. It's just uh, a lot of cool stuff there. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of fun. When we first got Tamir Morrison in attack of the clones and he has uh, an obvious like Kiwi new New Zealand accent. My feeling at the time was, Oh, well this is what I see as representative Mandalorians now. 
And of course, yeah. you know, they, they end up dubbing him into empire strikes back. And like, they, they make that the official voice of the clones. Like that cultural thing, that accent of Tamir Morrison became inherent in what we knew about Django and Boba Fett and the clones. And because we had so little insight on Mandalorians, what I always assumed was intrinsic to Mandalorians as well. So it is interesting that they established that there was something cultural about mm-hmm. Django Fett that we just, we don't know what that means quite yet, but it just turns out again through serendipity that Tamir Morrison has this, this, this native dance fight ballet martial arts thing. Uh, I forget the name of it, but um, he just had that in his back pocket. And that is an aspect of his New Zealand culture. So you've already got a distinct character voice and now you can marry it with a distinct character physicality that we we've never been able to see from Boba because for whatever reason, he has a finicky backpack that tends to <laughs> tends to uh, kind of get the better of him before he can do anything cool on screen. We finally get to see like everything that Boba has to offer. And so weaving in this, this cultural aspect to it just makes it more distinct and a little richer and what a fun thing for them to find. And it's cool that Tamir Morrison is enough of a performer that he he could understand his head. Like there's something about what I've already got that I can do that I've been doing, you know, forever that I think could inform this character. I, I want a chance to show it off. And of course, you know, Robert Rodriguez looks at it and says, of course, you know, that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's the spice that we need to really like put this character over. And they show a scene where they work that into the fight choreography in it. And it's just kind of like this abrupt, um, pivot like where he just changes his stance but he does it with impact and with conviction like just the way he lowers his leg is like i've dispatched this bad guy now i'm over here and by the second my foot plants on the ground i know where my gun's going to be trained and there's just something about the the ballet of of his arm working in in symmetry with his leg as he stamps that is just cool it's just a cool visual but it's nothing we've ever seen in fight choreography before and now we have it and now it's just part of Boba Fett's character and good on him. Yeah. Yeah, that's the best part is that it is now Boba Fett. That's Boba Fett's right. fighting style that is now canon. We have now seen it and that's going to hopefully continue into the book of Boba Fett. Um but it sets up this theme that of course Rick Famuyiwa even goes further on where it's kind of this allowing the actors to bring to the table when a lot of times, you know, there are some act or some directors like Wes Anderson, where you can't change the to the or anything like that. It has right. to be exactly how he wrote it. And then you have a director like Rick Famuyiwa, who's like kind of collaborating with the actors and like, yeah. Hey, let's get this scene done. What's the best way to do it. And the episode that he directs has a lot of layers to it. And uh, we, of course, dove into a lot of these layers on our (laughs) coverage of this episode. But he gets a he gets quite the cultural uh, platter here to deal with. I mean, you have the the different perspectives of the Empire. You have Mando taking off his helmet and basically saying, what's more important, my my honor to this child or my honor to my culture? And it's just a lot of deep stuff going on and listening to Rick family explain it once again shows that he knows what he's doing. He knows where they are going with this. And then of course, collaborating with the actors to achieve it, I think gives us a, even though this, this episode did feel like the least important one in my, in my opinion for season two, but it still shows just how weighty this episode was because a lot of layers to it. Yeah. I, I personally don't think there's a single throwaway episode in the season 
there's some that have a lot more plot or reveals or character introductions that are the the more tentpole ones of the season and and this probably isn't that but at the same time for informing us about where mando's at and the fact that he took off his helmet you know then what does that mean and like you said rick explains what is at his core is it still his creed or is it mm-hmm. the child and that's that's the thing that we're illustrating here and that's kind of you know the take that we had on it when we were batting it around uh, a few weeks back is he's saying something about where exactly is Mando at? You still have to read into what the reveal means. And so to hear it from the director, you get a, well, you get a little bit of validation that, yeah, okay, we were picking up what he was laying down and he was able to communicate what he wanted that scene to say effectively enough that, yeah, I think we all got it. So yeah, as far as just giving us a clear indication of heading into the finale, where everybody's at emotionally, mentally, uh, mm-hmm. what the stakes are and uh, you know, what people are willing to do to win the day. This was a very important episode, not to mention it was still perfectly fun. And you got to see a, a really vile Imperial shot point blank range. And you know, that's as good as anything I want in an episode. So um, th- there was still fun to be had here. So I, I like, maybe they gave him a lighter weight episode in that respect. But mm-hmm. like you said, the right director for the job, they pointed out that he's someone that, is willing to observe and figure out what are the actors bringing to it that we can lean into to just make things hit a little bit more impactfully. And you need someone with that particular eye. You know, maybe he's not the one who's going to be staging the ultimate action set pieces, but he's the one that's going to see what his actors can really deliver. And over the course of a few takes, draw them out and provide the performance that's going to communicate what this episode needed to communicate. And again, I don't know. I thought it worked pretty good. So I'll, I'll give it to, you know, Favreau and Filoni, whoever made the call on who's directing what this season, that this was a perfectly appropriate use of Rick. And, uh, yeah, I think it was the, the right calm before the storm to get us into our finale. And of course we talked about this as well, but, um, listening to John Favreau and Dave Filoni discuss like, Hey, should we, should we film the, the slave one rotating? Should we right. film the path? Yeah. It's just one of those things where it's not even needed. I don't even think anyone necessarily wanted nope. it, but the fact that those two guys are such big star Wars <laughs> nerds and it's like, they we won. have an opportunity yep. to do this. Let's go ahead and do it. And that I think was so great because um, we talked about it in our episode, but it was something that immediately caught my attention and was like, mm-hmm. yes, that that is so pleasing to me to see because now every time I watch Empire and I watch uh, uh, Attack the Clones, I'm going to be completely satisfied because I know how the ship operates now. Right. It's one of the things you didn't know you wanted until you see it. What I love is how much effort they went to for what's effectively a background gag. Like there's a lot of people that will watch this episode and because maybe they didn't grow up with a a slave one toy flying it around thinking, you know, about the intricacies of this starship, it would be totally lost on them. And it's just, you know, it's just some gears grinding in the background. It's just like, whatever, that's okay. I guess that's the inside of the ship, but no, they, Mm -hmm. they had to, they had to effectively digitally build the entire inside of the ship, all the mechanics and the gears and the, the hydraulics and everything that has to, do this, this transformation, they had to craft all of that digitally so that they could present it in the volume in a way that would look realistic when you have the foreground of the characters. That is a heck of a lot of effort for a very fleeting and subtle moment. And for the showrunners and the money men to sign off on that 
it shows that there's a willingness to sort of chase your muse. Like there's some things that you throw into an episode purely for whimsy because you just want it to have these special little moments that are going to connect with people either at a very subtle level and just really help to make the world feel weighty and real or for the people that love the slave one and have known that ship for you know, 30 some odd years, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's something that they would have wanted to see that they're finally getting paid off. And so it, it really is a service to them. So either way you slice it, there's value there, but explain that to someone who's trying to figure out where we use our budget for an episode. Like we're, we're going to have about seven seconds of screen time. It's in the background and we want to devote, you know, $500,000 to it. Like there, there's, there's nothing that would make that math work if you didn't have passionate people advocating for it. And that's what I think just makes mm-hmm. that so special. Now, something else that is uh, remarkable that they were even able to interview. And I, and I know that we're going to get more interview from the same sit down from Peyton Reed, where they talk about Luke Skywalker, but the mm. fact that they're able to discuss this entire finale episode and make you feel like it was completed in a way without even saying <laughs> right. Luke's name um, is yeah. quite interesting here. But of course, once again, perfect selection for the director of the finale episode. And my favorite thing now about this episode is the fact that the stunt coordinator had to match Giancarlo Esposito's energy and was Mm -hmm. like, you know, this guy comes in, he has this dark saber and, you know, Giancarlo Esposito, he's not in his 20s anymore. I mean, (laughs) but he's just out there and it's like, you know what? I understand this character. He's got he's he's reserved and a lot of times, but he's got some rage and he has this dark saber. So he's just going to go ham on the stunt coordinator Mm -hmm. that creates this really spectacular fight because you see Moff Gideon with the dark saber and his claim, you know, this is this is Gideon's claim to the galaxy is this dark saber that he is holding on to. And then you have the Mandalorian with, of course, his best car spear to create this this awesome fight that we uh, we haven't really seen anything like it before in Star Wars. Yeah, it is interesting that Giancarlo Esposito was able to psych himself up and be like totally berserk to the point where he's destroying lightsaber props. Um, I. <laughs> I like that. I like that Giancarlo Esposito isn't going to phone it in, right? Like you said, he's, he's no spring chicken. He's a, he's an older, more reserved character. He's supposed to be like the thoughtful villain, but is he going to unleash his fury and his rage uh, when the moment calls for it? Absolutely. And is Giancarlo Esposito going to pour himself into the role? Absolutely. And is that going to raise a few eyebrows from the stunt guys that are like, okay, now I see what I got to do. And, um, yeah, I'm not playing an old man. I'm, I'm, I'm playing a guy that's playing to win. So that, that's fun. And, you know, we enjoyed that, that scene. So obviously what they ended up turning in works really well. It is interesting that they didn't have to touch on Luke Skywalker to still have plenty of things to draw on for the finale. Like this episode covered a lot of ground, uh, technically, visually, story wise. So I, I think they felt that they reasonably could pull that out and we would still have enough to talk about. Like, the dark troopers, you know, like Giancarlo Esposito's role, uh, and so much more. So, uh, you know, I'll step back and I, we can talk about everything that I guess is fair play at this point. And, um, obviously as much as I'd love to talk about Luke, we'll hopefully be able to talk about that on another cast. Yeah. I'm assuming the next episode may be entirely dedicated to Luke Skywalker or something, or at least a good portion of it. Um, mm. but something I didn't think about was that they, 
used as much practical effects in this episode as they could right. to the point where, you know, they have to have the dark saber look semi like a dark saber um, for the fight. You have to have it, you know, of course the aluminum one that John Carlos Zito destroyed about six of them and made the, <laughs> of course the, the prop artist feel very uncomfortable as he's destroying <laughs> through all these dark sabers. But the other cool thing is the practical effects of putting actors into the, the dark uh, trooper, attire here and then just cg the all the gears and that stuff Mm -hmm. i always like it when projects take that approach because it just feels a little more real there's something about having a full cgi Mm -hmm. character that feels a little off um and so having of course these dark troopers that give mando a a run for his money here is is really cool and to have the stunt coordinators on the same page to Mm -hmm. (laughs) to where their movement is in sync with another like one another like they would be if they were robots um, a lot of cool stuff there. Other than that, though, I that's all I have on those dark troopers. Do you have anything else to add on the dark troopers? Uh, yeah, I. it was the right call. And I didn't even realize it. When I was first watching it, I thought, this is CG. It's pretty good CG, but they're pretty shiny and they're all kind of moving pretty close to the same. So I thought that it was 100% CG, except for like where it's like interacting with Mando. I thought that, you know, there's some close-ups where it's like a glove or whatever, and they're augmenting it with some CG for gears. But I thought by and large, most of the wide shots that we were seeing was full CG. I love that it wasn't because first off, it, it tells me that my my CG sensing abilities, when, when a show is operating at this level... Mm-hmm it's really hard to tell. Sometimes it's just really great costumes with some really like polished surfaces. And that's a true practical on the set kind of a thing. And it's so indistinguishable that I would have aired on the side of CG when I shouldn't have. That's what I did here. And so I, I think that says a lot. What I, what I really enjoyed was the reason why they did it mm-hmm. because they could have CG these, you know, like having robots walk. I mean, that's not hard to pull off. You know, we, they did it very convincingly in episode one. They can do it very convincingly, you know, 20 some odd years later. Um, but the idea that when you have something that's shiny, if you do it in CG and you don't have a really great onset reference, there's a danger of making it a little too perfect. Right. Because unlike in reality where you need to buff the perfection into a material in the computer world, you need to buff imperfection into a material. And so the, the danger is that you don't make your 3d models imperfect enough to look right in the real world, because it's very hard to even know where you should be adding grit and smudges and things that are just going to catch the specular highlights at a slightly different angle that you, you see the imperfection in the molding of the metal. Like there's just, there's so much reality that takes forever to bake into a CG model that if you can do it practically and augment it with CG, you're going to get what looks like top flight cinema quality, painstakingly detailed CG, but you're going to get it in frame and it's just going to feel better and weightier. And Mm. those imperfections are just inherent in reality. And that's just going to sell it better. And I trusted that their CG game was so good that they could pull off these dark troopers, hundred percent CG and they could have, they absolutely could have. But the fact that I couldn't tell the difference and that the end result was something that was effectively practical, but you assume that they had to do it CG because of just Mm. how, how robotically they move and just how everything felt like this can't be a practical thing. 
I love it. I, I love that they they figured out how to walk that line so seamlessly that I, I feel like I have a, a good enough eye to know, but nope, nope, they fooled me. And if an effect can fool you, that's an effective effect. Yep. Um, so good on them. The dark troopers were really responsibly handled. Absolutely. And another thing that was perfectly handled, one would say, is the recreation of Jabba's mm. palace. Yes. Now, I just assumed that they kept all of the other set pieces of Jabba's palace just uh, put away somewhere in a garage. I figured this was in one of George Lucas's massive garages. But it turns out that they went back to the original blueprints and they had to build this thing up from scratch. And it was awesome to hear Peyton Reed talk about it because he's like, okay, we got to make sure that we add in this piece. And, you know, remember remember when Carrie Fisher hit her head on this piece over there, we got to put that in the same exact spot because why would it be moved? And so just making everything a perfect match of course, they didn't need it to be perfect uh, because this is, you know, 30 years later. Of course, some things might be a little bit different, uh, but they they decided to take that approach to make it absolutely perfect and to just immerse us into Jabba's palace and put so much attention to detail when they didn't need it. I mean, when they showed the outside landscape of Jabba's palace, we all knew what it was. Right. And yeah. we would have been OK with a couple of minor imperfections. But the fact that they went in and paid that much attention to detail right. uh, just has some great, great meaning for fans behind it. And it shows that, that we have people that are very much attached to this project, that there's quite a lot to uh, that they have in store for us in the future. But I loved it. I thought that this was a reveal that I didn't know we needed. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah. You you said it all there. Just the 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 willingness to do whatever it takes to get it right. They tried to do it on the volume. They thought, you know, can we just render this and just use the tech that we use for almost everything else? And will it work? And they realized that with Jabba's palace, they wanted to interact with so much of it that there wasn't a big enough portion of it that could be strictly virtual that it made sense to rely too heavily on the volume. Like there's still, you know, some backgrounding that I'm sure is virtual, but, no, we, we want to come down the stairs. That can't just be on the LED screen. We want, we want that practical opportunity to, to be in that space and have the same shot as, uh, originally in Jedi when, when, uh, you know, someone gets dispatched off screen in the stairwell. They didn't want to pull back on their ideal version of this scene for the sake of the expediency of doing it purely in the virtual mode. And again, that says something. We're talking about an Easter egg. We're talking about something that all it's really trying to do is say, hey, Boba Fett's arrived and we're going to have some more fun with him. They didn't even have to do it in Jabba's palace. They could have just done a virtual backdrop of Tatooine. It's just him getting off the slave one back on Tatooine and walking off into the twin sunsets for an adventure. Like they, they didn't have to do it. They did it because at the end of the day, it was the most special version of it they could do. And they wanted to tell a story. Uh, you know, he's, he's come to rule. He's come to. Mm -hmm plant his flag and they they just said well this is the best way we can think of to do it so if that's the the best scene that we can come up with we're going to do whatever it takes to realize that and that's great and i'm sure that that set is going to be used a few times over in the series so it's not like it's just fleeting for this one easter egg i'm, I'm sure that they've got bigger plans for Jabba's palace or boba's palace i guess we should call it now um but nonetheless you just you got to respect everyone at the top of their game never phoning it in and always doing what's best for the story and the scene rather than, you know, what's the cheapest, quickest, dirtiest way to get us in and out without too much fuss. Mm -hmm. 
Well, and then another thing that they really dove deep into was make the the decision to make Bib fat. I yes. thought it was just kind of like uh, you know a comedic you know feature to he's just now the boss, but there's you know the symbolism behind it that like he is becoming Jabba, what Jabba right. was, and and so making him uh, into this fat character, and then listening to. Filoni talk about the decision behind that mm-hmm. um, was a, was a whole lot of fun. It, it kind of stinks that they killed him off, but uh, it's also satisfying as well. Uh, but it makes you want to see a little bit more of just what Bib has been doing there, and I think we're going to see the you know repercussions of that, of course, in the book of Boba Fett. You were talking about thematically what it means and how they were saying like we want to show that even though the huts just by their species are are slugs that probably the reason why George Lucas went that direction is because there's a sense that a gangster that is basically wetting his beak, that he's just getting a, he's getting his cut from everyone. There's a gluttony to that. There's a largesse. There's, there's something about kingpins that says Mm -hmm. they're consuming more than they deserve. Right. And so he said, well, you know, we've already done this in star Wars, like Orn Frita or boss Nass. Like it seems like anyone that gets to the top of the pyramid for some reason, they just, they overeat in the star Wars universe. Like that, yeah. this is just stuff we know. So can we do that? Can we give him a gullet? Can we like really highlight that Bib Fortuna has been living high on the hog and he's gotten slow and he's gotten lethargic. And that's why Boba can just walk in here and take him out because eventually that gluttony has gotten the better of him. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, yeah, that's, that's thematically what you want. That's, that's people digging into the world and saying, what's, what's the backstory here? It's not just a matter of, okay, Bib Fortuna took over. Let's just rummage up the Bib Fortuna prosthetics and just give them more Bib Fortuna. It's what can we say with the character that is going to tell us so much more about what's happened in the last six years. Uh, that's what you get when people care about the project and are yeah. willing to, you know, make an extra prosthetic to really sell it. Yeah, absolutely. And just my overall closing thoughts on this entire episode of Disney Gallery is just being able to see and hear this team discuss their experience and and explain to the audience what Mandalorian means to them just makes me extremely excited to see what is next for us sure. because we are we're we're salivating right now. We're we're right off the end of season 2. Um, and I don't think season two could have been any more perfect. And um, I just, I'm, I'm excited to see what, what's it in store for us in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Season two definitely did what you want season two of any show to do. You want it to demonstrate that everybody has learned how to do the show and deliver even better than what they did in season one. Season one was fun, but there were a few thin spots where you saw that they are still trying to like get their groove and like, you know, Filoni figuring out how to do live action. Like they were still cutting their teeth and, and building that vocabulary and, and learning how to deal with the volume. And like, there was so much that they were learning that the end product while great, wasn't the greatest heights that the show could reach. So you want season two to say, Hey, look, like we figured it out. We've cracked the code. Now we can go even bigger and do even more. And now there's no limits to the stories we can tell. That's what season two delivered. And that's why it's so exciting to see mm-hmm. not just what they do with season three of the Mandalorian, but now that they have this technology nailed down and the right creative people overseeing the, the whole endeavor of the Filoni verse. Yeah. Take me anywhere in the star Wars universe now and tell me a fun story using this tech. And I know it's going to be a feast and I'm going to walk away going, Oh yeah, that was well worth an hour of my time. That's the promise that the Mandalorian season two delivered. And I just, I can't wait for more. I can't wait for more. Mm-hmm. 
Well, while we are waiting for more and our listeners are waiting for more, John, where can the people find you? Well, uh, before I plug that other podcast, since this is probably the last episode that's going to be in our Mandalorian only feed for a little while, we should probably just say up front, the plan is to come back for season three of the Mandalorian. And then since that's going to be basically the better part of two years away, we're going to be covering Boba Fett, which effectively is Mandalorian season three. Um, since that's what's coming out next November, December, we're, we're definitely going to be covering that. We're going to have a lot of stuff in the meantime that we're going to cover on our main feed. But if you are just tuning in through the TV talk Mandalorian only feed, um, by all means, you can find us at Star Wars TV talk, our main feed, which you can also just search for in any podcast app. It has basically the same thumbnail as our Mandalorian feed, just without the Mandalorian logo. So if you want any of our off season coverage, where we're going to look at, you know, probably more Disney gallery, if they put out Disney gallery stuff, we'll look at whatever else Lucasfilm puts out this year. I think we're getting the bad batch fairly soon. We may look at some vintage stuff uh, and by vintage, I mean like clone wars, rebels, you know, stuff that came before Mandalorian. Uh, so there's lots of stuff that we're going to be covering while we wait for the next prestige live action TV Lucasfilm project to drop. So by all means, check us out there, but this may be the last thing we have in this feed for a few months. So, uh, don't unsubscribe. We'll just, we'll be back whenever there's something else to talk about. Absolutely. Um, and the other podcast you have, John, where can they yes. find that? Sure. Um, I cover SNL at SNL After Party. We are the largest and most awesomest SNL podcast that has ever existed. We are on YouTube. You can find us by searching for SNL After Party or in any of your podcast apps of choice uh, or go to SNLpodcast.com. You can find all of our coverage there. And in addition to navigating from our website, you can follow us on Twitter at Star Wars TV Talk and by emailing us at hello at Star Wars TV Talk.com. Please subscribe and leave us a five star review. You can find our TV Talk network at tvtalk.fm. Thank you so much for listening and may the force be with you always. <laughs>